Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Aaron Passell to talk about his book, Preserving Neighborhoods, How Urban Policy and Community Strategies Shape Baltimore and Brooklyn. Aaron is Associate Director of the Urban Studies Program at Barnard College, Columbia University. Aaron, thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the book and I'm really uh, excited to get the opportunity to do it. Absolutely. Same here. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I was uh, born in Florida, but grew up mostly uh, in Brookline, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Um, That's sort of important for me because starting in my early teens, I got to take the T into downtown and begin to explore um, probably the beginnings of my interest in cities um, and certainly the beginnings of my interest in sort of architecture and urbanism um, that uh, sort of translated to um, opportunities to visit places like Paris in high school and then again in college and sort of all cementing uh, a fascination with cities and the built environment specifically. Um, I trained as an uh, urban sociologist at NYU and have been thinking about how sociologists should struggle to understand the relationship between social processes and the built environment, specifically in cities since then. Yes. And so that brings us to our first point, which I, I told you we were going to start somewhere else and I've already <laughs> lied about that. In the book, you have a quote about telling your students that, uh, it's not about policy, it's about sociology. I'm sure I butchered that quote a little bit. But sure. so I think it's worth mentioning that, uh, and I, you know, if you could elaborate a little more, that the book is not, and I'll be honest, I personally thought it was a book about uh, you know, some recommendations on changing regulations and statutes for dealing with neighborhoods, where, to be honest, it's kind of the complete opposite of that, unless you disagree with me. No, no, I think you're right. And I think that that's an, that's an important point. And um, I think I get accused for its being a bit of an abdication of some kinds of responsibilities at some points. And I think that would be, that, that's in, potentially interesting to take up. So what I mean when I say that in the book is that what I try to do in classes and what I try to do here too is to present 
data relevant for understanding a phenomenon. In this case, it's about the relationship between historic preservation regulation and neighborhood change. Um, what I'm not trying to do in the book, and I'm what I'm what I try to avoid in class, is to indicate precisely um, what policy measures ought to follow. Uh, I'm really not. I've, I've, I'm not, and I've never been a policy researcher. I am, have zero ex, uh, experience with implementation, um, so I don't feel I'm in that position. That said, if the data I've generated about the relationship between preservation regulation and neighborhood change, and neighborhood activist groups and various other sorts of things um, that I try to address in the book, if if those data prove relevant for policymakers, uh, people with more experience thinking about how best to positively influence the way cities work. Uh, I'm thrilled if I can help in that task. It's just not my primary one. Well, so you bring up data, and I, 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 want, I want to circle back to that because obviously it's a big part of the book. But what I was going to start with for the question that I told you about, you know, you mentioned the books about Baltimore and Brooklyn. It's even in the title of the book. And so it's obvious that there's a reason you chose those two. And I was wondering if you could elaborate to our listeners, why did you choose these two urban centers? Sure. So the first claim that I encountered about the relationship between historic preservation and neighborhoods and neighborhood change was that historic preservation caused gentrification. So I encountered that claim. I, I, I can go back to sort of the origins of the project at some point, but I encountered that claim relatively early in beginning to investigate how we ought to think about um, sort of enduring neighborhoods in major cities across the United States and their relationship to various to various uh, possibilities available for new urban development and various other sorts of things. And so I encountered this claim, this this what really assumption is what I should better call it, that historic preservation caused gentrification. And what I came to realize very quickly trying to read into this claim, mostly a claim by made by um, planners and uh, real estate economists, was that it wasn't consistently the case. First of all, it wasn't consistently the case. Second of all, it's not clear that that causal direction is right, et cetera, et cetera. So what I wanted to do in selecting cases for the book was to complicate that uniform story as much as possible. And so the selection of Brooklyn and Baltimore, central Brooklyn and Baltimore, was really about looking for a sort of most different cases comparison. Um, thinking about two cities, thinking about two, two cities that are almost like um, poles on a spectrum of uh, development on the one hand and uh, shrinkage and abandonment on the other. And, and so you kind of moving right through then. And so you make the case that, and that, thank you for that explanation. You make the case that, you know, for example, Baltimore is very much of a top-down development, whereas Brooklyn is bottom-up. You know, am, I, am I understanding that correctly? That's right. So that's certainly what I saw in terms of the relationships between um, historic preservation regulation and the purposes to which that regulation was put in terms of um, its relationship to neighborhood change. So um, just to just to build out the comparison just a bit um, in Baltimore, what I saw was um, 
actors in the city planning bureaucracy and the city preservation bureaucracy allied with um, preservation nonprofits working to channel resources into Baltimore neighborhoods in the hope of encouraging, uh, if not redevelopment, at least stabilization. And by contrast, what I saw in Brooklyn was um, local neighborhood activists desperate for some mechanism with which they might mitigate a process of gentrification, which looked substantially out of their control, um, turning to what in New York is called landmarking, right? Landmark regulation in New York City, um, turning to landmark, landmarking and landmark regulation as a way of intervening in changes to the neighborhoods they saw around them. So that's what, that's for me, that's what this top down on the one hand and bottom up on the other meant. And so you bring up landmarking and if in the, in the middle of the book, you do make the case that a lot of people feel that that is their only tool to intervene. And I guess in your own professional examination, do you agree with that? Or are there other kind of mechanisms that can be used to intervene? So that's a really important question, which I think people have been asking me in a number of different places in a number of different contexts. And I think that the shortest answer, and my students will tell you I don't give short answers, but the shortest answer, I think, is is yes, it's really the only mechanism I see available to communities. Um, New York is complicated because New York has strong tenant laws. So um, New York's um, various kinds of rent regulation are, are probably the single best mechanisms in place anywhere to um, mitigate the displacement effects associated with gentrification. Um, but um, in terms of local sort of neighborhood activists, in terms of communities being involved in neighborhood processes, there are lots of, there are lots of um, land use zoning and planning processes which make some room for uh, local activists. But in my observation, at least, landmarking in New York City, um, historic preservation elsewhere, um, really is a, it's a bottom-up process in terms of being primarily initiated by neighborhood activists and then enforced by neighborhood activists. So in, in the book, I look at a number of different instances, including ones in which, you know, in um, Crown Heights South, for instance, where the process of landmarking has been frustrated, right? It's not uniformly a successful process just because people initiate it, but it's a, it's a locally initiated process. And then in places where it has been successful relies on ongoing local focus on, on uh, efforts to alter buildings, right? I, I attended um, community board meetings in uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant in which I watched um, local preservation advocates respond to the efforts of developers to make major changes within landmark districts and Bed-Stuy. And it's, they, were, they were the ones, you know, enforcement only came from them um, and worked its way up to LPC and stuff. Very interesting. And so, of course, we talked about gentrification a lot. I know it's a big theme of the book. 
One uh, one concept that I came across that I personally had not really been very familiar with, and I'm sure a lot of listeners would like to hear more about, is the idea of fortification. Yeah. And well, you know, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that for us. I, I can absolutely elaborate on it, and I will get myself into trouble with uh, preservation advocates when I do, um, which is, you know, trouble. May, maybe good trouble. I'm not sure. Um, so w- this relates particularly to my research on Baltimore. Um, I, w- I used uh, a lot of quantitative data on Baltimore looking at demographic change um, over the process of historic district designation. So whether I could detect um, changes in the status of the population in terms of education, um, income, and uh, racial identity um, before and after designation and then following designation to see whether that sort of locked in changed, encouraged change, et cetera, et cetera. And what, um, what I discovered, um, and for which I use the word fortification, which I have discovered some preservation advocates don't like is that, is that there are often, it's often the case, at least in Baltimore, that, um, historic district designation follows, status and privilege. So the neighborhoods for the earliest neighborhoods to designate as historic in Baltimore were roughly the highest status neighborhoods in the city by these relatively conventional measures, which I use percent, percent white, percent uh, college educated and median household income. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. So I don't have a simple causal story about designation following status or following privilege, but I think that there are a number of intuitive connections like um, awareness of new policies available, which was in part the case that, you know, Baltimore put historic um, district designation legislation into place and then these early adopters moved relatively quickly. I also think it's about sort of uh, both financial resources in terms of money to invest in uh, preservationists and attorneys and et cetera like that, but also sort of organizational resources, um, the ability to pull together a group of people to work on these things and to advocate for these things too. So so to kind of loop back around to the, to the term, um, what I see in, in Baltimore is um, high status neighborhoods using preservation regulation to defend themselves from change. Right. 
So I call well, that. That's a net. Go ahead. And that's a great explanation. Thank you. And it kind of brings into the next points. Uh, you know, there's literally the title of the chapter. I think anyone who works in this field is very familiar with the idea of the struggles of preservation against development pressure. And you kind of just discussed that, you know, there is, you know, there can be a bit of an elitist stigma when it seems like you're trying to stop people from building affordable housing, et cetera. And you kind of just said it yourself where a lot of the, as you said, the more influential are kind of on are kind of ahead of the curve with this already, if that makes sense. Yep. I think that's, so right. the, that's yeah. Go ahead. I can oh, jump sorry, in, ahead. but you can also, you can, you can, you can clarify if you want to, but I think that there's, Oh no. Yeah. There's really an, there's an enduring presumption of whiteness and privilege in association with preservation. And I think that's one of the greatest obstacles in, uh, in Baltimore, in the processes through which, you know, in, uh, in the hopes of, preservation advocates in Baltimore to encourage stabilization, one of the things that they encounter is, uh, is suspicion um, and, the, and a, a wariness uh, among, um, among neighborhood residents, many of them black, um, about the role of preservation historically and the things, um, and the things it can lead to. Um, and I want to actually loop all the way back. I mean, to, to say, I am very skeptical about the relationship between preservation and gentrification. It, it may happen in some instances, and that's you know, one thing I want to emphasize about the book is that the key, probably the, over, the, the primary finding of mine is it's complicated. The relationship of preservation in neighborhoods is contingent, contextual, dynamic, variable, all of these things. But, um, but, uh, the, this claim of gentrification carries a great deal of power and because people are so afraid of gentrification, um, whether it's something that we measure, and this is, I have to say, this is actually something I've been really trying to advocate with my students over the last couple of years in particular, is that gentrification has come to play a really critical discursive role in urban politics broadly understood. And um, it's, I think it's often the case that the fear of gentrification does much more work than, than concrete processes of displacement. Um, so that, uh, you know, trying to pull this all together, right? So that I think that, you know, this connection between um, historic preservation and gentrification is an important one because in a lot of communities, the immediate response is a kind of wariness. And you, you, in the book, you do also, I guess, play devil's advocate and that it isn't all cheery. I think you, you specifically mentioned that one of its biggest failings is kind of that mentality of NIMBY. Yeah. You know, for those who aren't familiar, it's not in my backyard. Right. And I so I guess the question I have is not to put you on the spot, you know, mm -hmm. I guess, how do we, I guess, how do you counteract that? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, by getting involved, I think is the, is the answer. I think that, um, I think that local communities, since most of the preservation emphasis comes from people on the ground, um, that it's a matter of tempering those NIMBY instincts by, um, by sort of diversifying the group advocating 
for preservation in, in a particular context. I also think, and and you you may remember that you know part of this NIMBY conversation emerges from a really fascinating conversation I had with a former employee of the Landmarks Preservation Commission in New York. Um, I think more resources put into um, preservation bureaucracies within cities would also be um, would also be a key to this. Um, LPC in New York historically, at moments, has had a really um, a, a really significant outreach role, um, getting out getting out across the city um, to encourage people to consider preservation as something they might engage in. But that that role is mostly decades old and one that the LPC is no longer primarily playing. Now the LPC is, in my read at least, and from talking to folks in New York, is really primarily reactive. It's really, it's really in the business of trying to keep up with the process of development on the one hand and preservation on the other, and not um, reaching out to underserved communities, for instance, um, so that... Um, so as to temper that NIMBY instinct. All right, great. So one question I always have at the end that I, w- I still want to ask you, of course, is, you know, what have you been working on since the book came out? But you do hint at in the book that you purposely picked these two polar opposites in these cities. So the next step is kind of something you deem as being in the middle. I think you would call out Philadelphia as possibly that prime target. That's right. Were you, and were you so- able to start that analysis? Well, I'm I'm really easing into it. So you've caught me at okay. a, <laughs> you've caught me you've caught me at the at the the brief recovery period when the semester's the semester's done and I begin to start to think about what's next. So um so a piece I left out of my bio is that I, I live in Philadelphia. Um and am, and I'm frankly embarrassed never to have done research here because there's just so much going on. Um but so the reason that Philadelphia, there are a number of reasons that Philadelphia is, is an ideal next step. Um, it is conveniently, you know, for the purpose, for thematically, it's excellent in the sense that it splits the difference between Brooklyn and Baltimore in having both um, significant gentrification and significant abandonment. Um, it's, it shrank, it shrank like Baltimore shrank, um, not to quite the same degree, and turned around and started growing. I think the 2000 census was the first census since 1950 in which Philadelphia increased in population. Might have been 2010. So, so Philadelphia is really doing both of the things that I was observing in the two really radically different cities in which this book was about. Um, it's also conveniently exactly halfway between Brooklyn and Baltimore on a map. Which is uh, would nice, but and then of course I have access to it because I live here. Um, the key for me in terms of what I carried away from the research from the book is a curiosity to reapply the sorts of lessons that I learned from looking at Brooklyn and Baltimore, because the neighborhoods I looked at in Brooklyn and Baltimore were so individual and variable. Um, it's most clear in the Baltimore case in that I saw I saw the relationship between preservation and neighborhood change playing out almost on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis, despite 
the sort of common economic challenges that these neighborhoods faced. Um, and so I'm, I'm just really eager to carry forward lessons from, from these two cities to a new place to examine whether, you know, what is, is Philadelphia as sort of radically variable? Is it as contingent on very specific neighborhood characteristics? Is there something more in common? The Brooklyn neighborhoods had a lot in common with one another. And so, um, so how will, how will Philadelphia come out on this front? So that's really my next step. Yeah, perhaps we'll talk again about that someday. Uh, I'd enjoy that. So I think one thing we that I accidentally glossed over and that some listeners are probably wondering, you had asked the question earlier, is there a correlation between historic designation and gentrification? And I guess maybe you can you can elaborate on this simplified answer I'm going to take from the book, and that is just like the cities themselves, it's not uniform and it's unique to each area. I think you put that very well. Uh, and that's really and that's really very much what I would say. I think um, I think that in a place like Central Brooklyn, where people are working hard to find ways to mitigate um, processes of displacement that they see going on around them, that landmark designation can be a useful tool, not primarily because his, because landmark designation prevents displacement, but because the process of working towards historic designation is a community building process. Um, the piece that I got out of the Brooklyn research in particular, though the Baltimore research too, that I did not anticipate was, was that sense that people, because it's a primarily a neighborhood based effort, people come together to talk about their neighborhood to engage with its history and to engage, to, to envision its future. And in doing so, they build a whole set of robust social connections that allow them to do other things than simply preservation. So as you might remember in Crown Heights North in Brooklyn, the Crown Heights North Association, which is was originally uh, founded around an effort to um, designate Crown Heights North or parts of Crown Heights North and was very successful, has been very successful in doing so, has also become an organization that um, that works more broadly to um, build, protect, preserve the community um, beyond simply its buildings. Very interesting. And I guess we'll have to accept that as there's no definitive answer. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me and all our technical issues. <laughs> No problem. I'm, I, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed getting to talk to you. I, I really enjoyed some of those those questions. Um, you pushed me in directions. Um, think to just think back on the book um, in, a, in a number of ways that were really uh, fun for me and useful. So thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And for my, for the listeners who uh, unfortunately we had to gloss, we just scratched the surface of this book. The book is preserving neighborhoods: how urban policy and community strategies shape Baltimore and Brooklyn. I would recommend picking it up. So, Aaron, thank you for being here. And for everyone listening, thank you and have a great day. Thanks, Brian. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.